Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zaphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and his host, and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this that we've done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them all. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahirath in front of Baal-Zaphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians from whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know I am Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and, the, and there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of the fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. 
And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hands over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered their chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You can be seated. It was a blessing this week to be able to read and see some of our founding fathers, some of our early presidents, as we'll see here maybe later, even some of our later presidents, acknowledging God as the authority under which they served, acknowledging the scriptures as the source of truth. Um, it, it was a, a breathing a breath of fresh air uh, into things that... Uh, now, here in 2016, there are many things that, that don't seem to be uh, aligning under that same truth, uh, but it's, it's good to be re- reminded uh, that this is how the country began. This is how it got started, and we celebrate what God did in those days and pray that God would continue to uh, change and reform and bring about uh, His purposes and His truth, even in our country today. Well, we're taking the next five Sundays in July away from Hebrews. And we've been looking at this theme uh, anchored in someone better. Beginning today, we're going to study the scriptures to see what anchored living, that's what we're going to look at this month, anchored living. We're going to see what anchored living looks like. And anchored living begins with a right understanding of the freedom that we have in Christ. The foundations of our faith are established upon being in Christ, being a child of the King, having been justified, adopted, sanctified, connected to Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. The Bible refers to this as our union with Christ. And so to explain and teach the subject matter of anchored living today... I'd like for us to look at Exodus 14, which is, as Joel read, a a great account of God's rescue of his people from the hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. On July 10th, next Sunday, we'll see that anchored living requires a love for and, and a delight even in the pattern set forth in the scriptures. If we're going to exhibit anchored living, we must hold fast the pattern of God's word in our lives. We must know it. It must be in us. We have need for daily Bible intake if we're going to live anchored in Christ our Lord. 
Then on July 17th, we'll see that anchored living, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, is dead and lifeless. It's contrary, in fact, to the new life espoused in the Scriptures. And as a new creation in Christ, anchored living is characterized by vessels filled with the Holy Spirit. The power for living in Christ has been supplied to us in the ministry of the Spirit. On July 24th, then, we'll see that anchored living is to be an ongoing stewardship of praise. One who's anchored in Christ worships the Lord. And it's not a Sunday-only event, but it's a new lifestyle. A change has occurred on the inside, and worship is our habitual response to God for His wonderful work in us. And we're here to give Him glory, to worship Him, and to sing praises to His name. And we'll speak to that on July 24th. In the final week of the series, July 31st, Ralph will be uh, speaking and preaching the word to us. And we'll see from the Bible how significant prayer is to anchored living. If you're not hearing from God and seeking His direction and counsel for your life, you're far from anchored in your living. If we're united with Christ, how is it that we can be absent of prayer whether at an individual level, at a marital level, or at a corporate level as a body. See, the tone and tenor of your prayer life will gauge in large part whether you're living anchored in Christ or not. So, so that's really the big picture of where we're going the next five weeks. Okay? Um, I hope it's your heart's desire to be here each week to hear what God's Word has to say about anchored living. So with all that in mind, I'd like for us to pray, and we're going to jump in here to Exodus 14. Would you pray with me? To the God of our fathers, we pray. Lord, as we look to your word on this 4th of July weekend, I pray that we would be reminded of the freedom that we have in this land and the great lengths to which many have gone to protect, guard, and secure our nation's liberty. Lord, I thank you this morning for the men and women who have fought as representatives in our country People who have taken up arms to defend and protect this great nation. Many have given their lives that we might walk today in freedom. And I praise you, Lord, for being our defender and our shield, our rock of defense, our strong tower. You are not only our God of help from ages past, but you are our hope for years to come. You are, God, our only hope. Father, I pray that you would lead us as a nation to repentance. Turn our eyes to you. We trust that as we repent and draw near to you, that you will hear our prayers and draw near to us. Father, we ask that your hand would become our help in these days. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Deemed the schoolmaster of the Republic. Noah Webster wrote these words in a piece titled On the Education of Youth in America in 1788. He said, Every child in America should be acquainted with his own country. He should read books that furnish him with ideas that will be useful to him in life and practice. As soon as he opens his lips, he should rehearse the history of his own country. You know, back in the day, history wasn't just a school subject. 
but it was a window into the morality and religion upon which this country was founded. A country rooted and grounded in God's hand of protection. A country started by men of principle and high character. A country whose founding documents are intricately linked with the Holy Scriptures. A country established on morality and religion as the basis of her government. A country that truly exemplified the land of the free. I don't think it comes as a surprise to us this morning as we gather that freedom as we know it, as we have known it, is eroding. The foundation of truth as we know it from God's word. It's no longer received and welcomed in many places. Government has removed God's word from the classroom. They've removed prayer. They put a stamp of approval on marriage just a year ago. That goes against the definition of God's word. The signposts of our nation are directing us toward a cliff. We live in dangerous times where to be a follower of Jesus means persecution is coming. Christianity is no longer tolerated. The name of Jesus is greatly offensive. And the teachings of Scripture are scoffed at in large measure. Yet the Scriptures serve as our examples, exhorting us, shining light on our path, that we might walk righteously and godly and soberly in this present age. Paul writes these words in Romans 15, verse 4. He says, For whatever things that were written before were written for our what? Learning. They're written for our learning. That we might walk, that we might through patience and the comfort of the Scriptures have what? Have hope. Friends, we come here each week and we open this word each week. It's my hope that we open God's word each week to be taught by God. We eagerly desire to hear what he has to say and pray that his word gets in us and that his word gets out of us, affecting those around us for God's kingdom. And so as we consider this 4th of July weekend and reflect on the founding of our country, I, I thought it helpful to turn to the narrative account of the nation of Israel. A vivid picture here in Exodus 14 of a nation on the verge of freedom. A nation on the verge of freedom. A nation that had been bound for 430 years. 430 years. God is rescuing them. And he makes a way for them where there seems to be no way. He does that in the passage. What's written here, friends, is for our learning. Anchored living begins with knowing who or what you're anchored to. Anchored living, as we'll use the term in the series, is being rooted and grounded in God through Jesus Christ. It's being established in the faith. The compilation of truth we know as the gospel. This truth is accessible to us through the God-breathed scriptures.
Here in Exodus 14, we see the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, on the verge of freedom. And the signs of freedom, mind you, have already been evident in the scriptures up to this point. Genesis 15, just to quickly catch you up to speed, this is important context before diving in. In Genesis 15, I just read two verses. This is God speaking with Abram. Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. He said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. God's telling Abram what's going to happen. He's talking about this time when the people are going to be enslaved in bondage in Egypt. And he says, And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And we see in our passage for today that that's exactly what happens. Upon their leaving Egypt, they literally plunder them. And God told Abraham that that's exactly what's going to happen. So there's this freedom that's promised by God. It's promised. We also see freedom is prophesied. Prophesied through Joseph. Look at Genesis chapter 50. When Joseph dies, in chapter 50, verses 24 and 25, Joseph says to his brothers, I'm dying. But listen, he says, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Where's here? Egypt. God will surely visit you. As we read Exodus 14 today, I want you to know that God has visited his people. And as they are leaving Egypt, they're taking the bones of Joseph with them. And I'm sure as they're taking those bones of Joseph with them, they're reminded of that promise of God visiting them. So freedom has been promised by God. Freedom is prophesied through Joseph. But also, let's not forget, freedom has been prepared for through Moses. Look at Exodus chapter 3. I just read verses 9 and 10. Now therefore, this is God speaking. Remember the burning bush. He's speaking to Moses. And in verse 9, Therefore the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I also have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God is going to use Moses to prepare to lead his people out of Egypt. So what follows then in the text in Exodus, the ten plagues, a recurring dialogue between God and Moses, frequent visits to Pharaoh calling for him to let my people go, frequent denials come back, Pharaoh's heart has been hardened and the Lord hardens his heart as well that he might receive greater glory. And we see that in the text in chapter 12 of Exodus, after the plague of the firstborn, Pharaoh finally gives Moses and Aaron the go-ahead to leave. They quickly make preparations to leave Egypt, taking with them silver and gold and many articles of clothing from the people of Egypt, who really wanted them gone. Because at this point, they feared their own lives. They saw that all the firstborn had died, and they were fearful that they were next. And so, leave Moses and Aaron. Take all of your people with you. Go! And it's in this context, you know, whether we speak of the nation of Israel in bondage to the Egyptians or the oppression levied against the colonies from Great Britain 
or, or the issue of slavery which came to the forefront during the days of the Civil War, or even thinking spiritually of being enslaved to sin. Freedom is wonderful news to an oppressed people, isn't it? 430 years of bondage in Egypt. That's the context of Exodus 14. As the people of Israel are being led by God by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire are God's instruments going before the people. He's shepherding his people out of bondage. That's what God's doing. And so as Exodus 14 opens, God has a word with Moses. He says, speak to the children of Israel. And he calls Moses to communicate with the people about where they're to camp. But he also communicates with Moses his bigger intention. This is important for us to understand and grasp. He says, I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all of his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. God even tells Moses that Pharaoh's heart is about to be hardened. God tells Moses that Pharaoh, in fact, is going to pursue them. Freedom is about to be tested. How much Moses communicates with the children of Israel, we're not told in the text. But they do seem to get the memo about camping by the sea. That's where they are when Pharaoh catches up with them, accompanied by the whole inventory of Egyptian chariots. The end of verse 8, chapter 14. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. It's just like what God told Moses Pharaoh is pursuing. It didn't take them long to catch up. They set their sights on Israel, camped out by the sea. I want you to notice the response in verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, what's interesting in the text is that just two verses earlier... The text says that the children of Israel, the end of verse 8, went out with boldness. Don't miss this. Now, having seen Pharaoh's army in the rearview mirror quickly approaching, they were very afraid. So what changed the boldness to fear? The sound of the chariots. The sight of Pharaoh's army nearby. Freedom is being tested. God provided a way of escape from Egypt, but now the people see Egypt once again. Things don't look good. And to the children of Israel, the situation is frightening. It's frightening. I'd like to give you from the text this morning eight principles, and we're going to zip through these. You might think eight. It's going to be forever. It's not. Hang with me. Follow with me. We're going to move through the text. It's going to be quick. Okay? But there's principles here that I think are helpful for us to grasp as we read through the narrative. Some wonderful principles for us to get a hold of. Here's the first Exodus principle. The difference between fear and boldness is the extent to which you view the God who speaks from the Scriptures. I'll say that again. 
The difference between fear and boldness. That's what we're dealing with right here. The difference between fear and boldness is the extent to which you view the God who speaks from the Scriptures. In other words, your view of God and His works will determine your approach to the situation. If you question who God is, if you don't think very highly of Him, if you fail to remember His mighty works, if you push aside how He's worked previously in your life, your tendency will be to fear. Your tendency will be to think you're not free at all. Boldness and confidence comes not because of peace, nor does it come by way of absence of war, but it comes because you trust the God who's overseeing all things. You can still have freedom despite pending trials and suffering. In fact, I'm reminded of those words in Psalm 23, verse 4. You remember those words? Essentially what what David says in that psalm is, you can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. How is that so? He says, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they what? Comfort me. In the text that we have before us, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, God is with his people. And so we see this Exodus principle. The difference between fear and boldness is the extent to which you view the God who speaks from the scriptures. So being very afraid, look at what they do, verses 11 and 12. Look what the people do next. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Is there a theme to those questions? How about complaint, bickering? Here's another principle I want to give you from the text. Fear jumps to the worst possible conclusion. Boldness in the Lord operates by faith. Fear jumps to the worst possible conclusion. Boldness in the Lord operates by faith. You see, the children of Israel, here in the text, have resigned themselves to die in the wilderness. That's what they believe is about to happen. They're going to die. God told Moses, remember, what was going to happen. He spoke to him about Pharaoh pursuing. But he also spoke to him about the reason for allowing this to happen. And that was that he might gain honor over Pharaoh and his army and that the Lord's name would be known among Egypt. Fear-based decision-making seems to think the worst and plans for the worst-case scenario. Fear catapults you in that direction. Fear raises to the surface question after question. It bubbles up worry. It lifts up doubt. But boldness in the Lord operates by faith. What do I mean? Faith specializes in operating according to what my two eyes cannot see. It specializes in that. Faith thrives in the context of how big my God is. 
It gets exercised as a result of what I know God can do. Faith is living in such a way that I know God is at work. I know he is able. Even when the situation might look, as I view it through the lens of my two eyes, it might look desperate, it might look hopeless. How many of you remember those three young men who were about to be thrown into the fiery furnace? Remember those three guys? Worst case scenario confronting them? was death by furnace. With a furnace staring them in the face, listen to what they say to the king. To the king. Daniel 3, 17 and 18 is where you can find this. Our God whom we serve is able. I love those words. Our God is able. Our God is able. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you've set up. That's boldness. That's confidence in the God that they served. Faithful to the one they professed to follow. Whether they lived or whether they died, it didn't matter. They trusted God for the outcome. Friends, do we trust God today for the outcomes? Or are we trying to manipulate all of the outcomes? Fear jumps to the worst possible conclusion. Boldness in the Lord operates by faith. Look how Moses responds to the cries of the people in 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. By the way, these two verses right here, I I love these two verses in this narrative. These are, in my mind, these are the asterisk verses right here. These are ones that we can put in our pocket and take with us. These are ones we can hold firmly to. Do not be afraid. They were afraid. He says, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Here's the third Exodus principle. And really, this is just pulled straight from Scripture. Uh, This one seemed to fit just almost verbatim, Romans 4.21. Faith is being fully convinced that what God's spoken, he'll bring to pass. Faith is being fully convinced that what God has spoken, he'll bring to pass. Now, this principle begs a question of us all. Do you really believe what God says in his word? Do you really believe what God says in his word? Do you believe that his word is true? Verses we're all here, I'm sure, familiar with. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, in all your ways, acknowledge him. And here's the promise. He shall direct your paths. The people are greatly afraid. They jump to the worst case scenario. We're about to die. And Moses interjects a word from the Lord. Don't be afraid. Watch what God's going to do. He's about to deliver you. He's going to fight for you. 
Take a good look at Pharaoh and his army. Go ahead. Get a really good look at them. Because you're not going to see them chasing you ever again. God's going to see to it. You know, some of us tend to operate a lot like the children of Israel. Things don't go our way. Things don't look really all that great. Situation doesn't look good. We need to get our eyes on on the Lord and trust Him with our lives. And listen, we don't stop trusting Him if things don't go our way either. We don't stop trusting Him. I'm reminded of those words of Elijah. He's calling the people to choose. If God is the one you're going to follow, follow Him. If Baal's the one you're going to follow, follow Him. Make a decision. Who are you going to choose to follow? If he's God, then follow him all the way to the end. There's one other important aspect of 13 and 14 that I wanted to just bring forward here. I just put it as an asterisk in the notes here, and that is that the children of Israel needed to hear the voice of Moses. The children of Israel needed to hear the voice of Moses. What, I mean, what if Moses had joined the people in their woes against the Lord? Well, what if Moses, at this point, had gone along with the complaints and the bitterness against God? You know, instead, what he does is he speaks up, he exhorts them to wait on the Lord, he points them to what God is going to do. Listen, you may not know the details of what God is about to do in someone else's life. Friend of yours, family member, co-worker. You may not know the details of what God is about to do in their life, but you do have His Word. And you can exhort and comfort by way of the living Word. One of the greatest gifts that you can give to someone is hope from the well of God's Word. Too many pessimistic folks today. Too many have lost hope. We need folks like Moses breathing life into people. We need more Moses figures today exhorting, calling the complainers to attention, helping them to see there's no need to be afraid. God has this situation and he's called us to trust in him, to walk by faith, to not do this on our own. You know, there are times in our lives when we need to hear the voice of God through one of his servants. And I want to tell you, it ought not solely come through a pastor preaching on a Sunday morning. The church is called to exhort one another. We've already covered that in Hebrews. Exhort one another. And all the more as the day is approaching. Let's raise the attention of this body to the one who is worthy to be trusted in all situations. Amen? In all situations. That's what we ought to be calling each other to. So faith is being fully convinced that what God has spoken, he'll bring to pass. Look at verses 15 through 18. God is here speaking with Moses. I want you to look how he begins in verse 15. He says, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Now, if you go backwards to verse 10, it says they were afraid and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Here in verse 14, the Lord says, why do you cry? It's almost, why do you all, why are all of you crying to me? He includes Moses and the people, right? Why are you all crying to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. 
Now remember that they are camped by the wilderness of the Red Sea. Pharaoh and company have pursued and they have them in their sights. Fear has set in. And Moses has exhorted them to look to the Lord. God speaks with Moses and he says, tell the children of Israel to go forward. And we read the text and we go, huh? Where are they supposed to go? We read this and we're wondering where are they supposed to go? Verse 16 is helpful. He then says to Moses, but the implication here is you, Moses, you lift up your rod. And stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. You know, it's amazing to me how casual God seems to be from a human perspective. I read this and, I, you know, it says, Moses, tell them to go forward. And you, lift up your rod, divide the sea. The people will go forward on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Sounds simple to God, doesn't it? And then I got to thinking, why is it that we fail oftentimes to receive it so simply? You know, we read this and we register miracle. Only a miracle can do that. Oh, here's a fourth principle right here in the text. And, and it's God's ways are, are, again, this comes from Scripture, Isaiah 55. God's ways are higher than our ways. And God's honor is always the greater concern. God's ways are higher than ours. And God's honor is always the greater concern. You know, it's hard to imagine receiving these words if you're Moses. Although by this time, I'm sure Moses isn't all that startled by God's instructions. Remember, he's heard God speak out of a burning bush. And he's seen the ten plagues right before his eyes. Moses doesn't have to think long about how the children of Israel are supposed to move forward. God tells him how this is going to happen. Verses 17 and 18, he then says... I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. He's already spoken to this, right? This is, this is bigger picture. This is what he's about. This is what he's doing. And he says, they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh. In case there are any of you here thinking, man, God's stuck on himself, gaining honor for himself. He's pretty selfish. Let's be very careful to, to think those thoughts. God is God. The book of Romans says that we are the clay. He's the potter. And we need to be careful about what we say. He has the right to do what he wants to do because he's God. He's a creator over all things. And one of the things that he's about is gaining glory and honor for his name. And that's exactly what he's doing right here in Exodus 14. And God says to Moses, here's the way this is going to go down. Tell the people to go forward. You stretch out your rod and divide the sea. I'll see to it that the waters actually split apart. I'll wall up the water on both sides. I'll also see to it that the children walk on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I'll see to it that the Egyptians follow them at just the right time through the sea. His ways are higher. His purposes are first and foremost about his honor and glory. He's God. He sees the big picture. You know, it got me thinking, you know, perhaps a question we don't consider a whole lot. Did you know that God's salvation provided to you through Jesus was for the glory of God? 
as well. It's for his glory. While it's true that God so loved the world, the Bible says, that he gave his only begotten son, it's also true that Jesus was about his father's business here on earth and he was intent on carrying out the will of the father that he would be glorified. That seems to be the highest concern during his time here on earth, the glory and honor given to his father. So that fourth principle, God's ways are higher than our ways and God's honor is always the greater concern. Look at the verses 19 and 20. It says, An angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Do you picture this? It's between them now. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, that would be to the Egyptians, and it gave light by night to the other so that the one did not come near the other all that night. This is a wonderful picture. Another principle, Exodus principle, a real simple principle here in the text. God protects us from the enemy. God protects us from the enemy. God is our great protector and provider, isn't he? He's our sure defense, he's our rock, he's our refuge in times of trouble. He stands in the way to keep Pharaoh and company from his people. The enemy cannot penetrate God's presence on the battlefield. And this principle is so helpful in anchored living. See, God protected his people in Exodus 14 by standing between them and the enemy. God still intercedes on behalf of his people today through his son, Jesus Christ died, he was buried and raised and now sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding, advocating on our behalf. We are protected, guarded, and shielded by his blood that covers us. Isn't the picture of God's presence standing between you and the enemy a wonderful encouragement? Listen, anchored living requires armored preparations. Anchored living requires armored preparations. You see, God protects us from the enemy by providing a complete armor specifically designed for the follower of Jesus. Put on the whole armor of God, the Bible says, so that you might stand against your enemy here in this world. God protects you in the battle with his own armor. You see, anchored living requires armored preparations. God's given that to us. As one of his children. So praise God he protects us from the enemy. Well during the night God parts the waters. And the million plus people. There were 600. The Bible says there were 600,000 men. I'm, I'm estimating that there were probably a lot of women. And there were probably a lot of children. I'm estimating there are well over a million people. So God parts the waters. The million plus people of God crossed the sea on dry ground. The waters, it says in verse 22, were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Can you picture that? A wall on their right, a wall on their left, and they're going through the sea on dry ground. You know, I find it incredible that one verse really is all the space that's given to the nation of Israel crossing the Red Sea. 
It just says that they crossed. It doesn't really make a big deal about it. It's a big deal to me. I'm reading it. How did that happen? How did they do that? What did it look like? I mean, even in our own family, we've talked about this, and we got on, off on a chain. There was a lot of talk about how this all happened, how it came down. Was there time to do all this overnight? Was all these questions. But the Bible just gives us one verse. They crossed. God's protective presence is making it possible for Israel to pass through the sea on dry ground. They cross completely over, and then God allows the Egyptians' passage. I, I picture this as I read it, like bloodthirsty savages. I get this picture that they were plunging headlong into the opening. The waters are still parted, still walled up at the sides. And you know, there's no commentary in the text whether or not the Egyptians thought twice about following Israel into a sea that happened to be parted on both sides, happened to be dry right now. They just go. Here's another Exodus principle. When God shows up, the enemy is rendered powerless. When God shows up, the enemy is rendered powerless. The text says that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. He troubled them. He took off their chariot wheels. I love that phrase. One of my favorite phrases in this whole chapter. He took off their chariot wheels. Listen, how well is your chariot going to go when you have no wheels? Yeah. You're, you're, you're in trouble when your chariot has no wheels. They drove them with difficulty, to say the least, yes. Well, listen to what they say in verse 25. When literally the wheels start falling off, listen to what they say. Let us flee from the face of Israel. For the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Listen, they recognized God's presence, but it was too late. They recognized the Lord was behind this. But it was too late. You see, they voiced their dire situation while standing in the midst of the sea that was about to serve as their grave. Judgment was upon the Egyptians. God is about to gain the honor that he spoke of to Moses. When God shows up, the enemy is always rendered powerless, helpless. I was reading earlier this morning a passage of the Legion. No one could tame this person until Jesus showed up. And all in all, you see in the scriptures, when Jesus showed up, there was a certain power about Jesus that no one could deal with. No one had an answer for. And God, same deal when he shows up, no one has an answer for. They're helpless. They're unable to remedy the situation. The enemy recognized God's hand at work, but it was too late. Notice God's instruction to Moses once Israel has passed over and the Egyptians are making their way through. He says, stretch out your hand over the sea and the waters, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. Verse 26. Here's another principle. Number seven. God chooses 
to work through us to accomplish his purposes. God chooses to work through us to accomplish his purposes. You know, how easy it would have been for God himself to just make the waters come back on the Egyptians when he saw time to do so. Did he need Moses to go out there and reenact and hold the, hold the rod out? Did he, did he need Moses to do that? No. But he instructs Moses once again to act with his rod. He chooses to work through us. Listen, he chooses to work through us not only to accomplish his purposes, but he does so oftentimes to test our faith. To test our faith. Are you willing to obey what he's saying to you? Do you know the joy, as you sit here this morning, do you know the joy of being used by God to accomplish his purposes? On the other end of obedience, how does that bolster your own faith? You see, God doesn't have to work this way, but he chooses to work through imperfect vessels to accomplish his purposes. And you know, when you see God working, you're encouraged in the faith. When you see him work powerfully through you, perhaps it's, it's in your words, or perhaps it's a deed done in his name. It's a joy to see how he works all these things together for his good. And he uses us, these imperfect vessels. Even this morning, he's using the foolishness of the word preached to impact lives that are gathered here. The cross is deemed foolishness to the world, but it has power to save according to the scriptures. So verse 27, it says, the Lord overthrew the Egyptians. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Verse 28, not so much as one of them remained Complete victory is secured by the Lord. Freedom from their enemy. Verse 30 says that Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. With their very eyes, they witnessed the deaths of Pharaoh and his army, his horsemen, his chariots, the whole lot of them. And I picture at this time... Recalling the words of Moses from back in verses 13 and 14. Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. Look at these final two verses. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. One more principle here I'd like to give you from the text. When God saves his people, he does so that we might fear him and believe in him all our days. When God saves his people, he does so that we might fear him and believe in him. All our days. The text leads us to believe that they recognized the great work of God in Egypt through what they saw here at the Red Sea. God's saving work, his rescuing, his deliverance. The response is opposite, isn't it, of that held earlier in the text, the fear of man. Remember that? Fear of man, they were fearful when they saw the Egyptians. And now here at the end of the chapter, that fear of man is exchanged for fear 
of God. And seeing what God has done, they feared God, they believed in God and in his servant Moses. They held their peace and they stopped grumbling, at least for a time. They marveled at God's deliverance and rescue. They celebrated his power over the enemy through song. If you read Exodus 15, wonderful passage of celebration. This was a time of worship. This was a time of recognition of, of God's wonderful work among the nation of Israel. And so we see that the Lord's rescue is intended to impact our living. His salvation work is not provided to just simply wow us in the immediate, but to transform us for the long haul. You see, the children of Israel, all you have to do is read one more chapter. The children of Israel are quick to complain again at the end of chapter 15. They find themselves without water in the wilderness. How quickly they forget the Lord's salvation from the hand of the enemy. Do you this morning find yourself having forgotten what God's done for you through Jesus Christ? I don't believe for a moment that the people of Israel are the only ones who have forgotten or neglected the wonderful works of God. Anchored living holds on by faith to the salvation work of God accomplished on our behalf through Christ's shed blood at the cross. Anchored living is predicated on the cross of Christ and his finished work. It's the power of the cross that reminds us to see things here through the eyes of faith. See, when life presses in with some form of suffering, some form of trial... One who is anchored in Christ always returns to the cross. When God saves his people, he does so that we might fear him and believe in him all our days. Fear God and believe in the one whom he sent. Today, tomorrow, even when you find yourself wandering through the wilderness of life, instead of complaining and bickering against God, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look to the cross and live. As amazing as it is that God saved Israel that day at the Red Sea, it's even more amazing what God did when He saved you and me through the redemptive work of His Son at the cross. Galatians 5 verse 1 says and calls us to stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Don't go back. Don't, no need to go back to Egypt. In Jesus' words in John eight thirty six, If the Son makes you free, you shall be free Indeed. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our strength and our song. We thank you that you've become our salvation. Thank you that you are our God. You are our Father's God. I pray that we will praise you and exalt you in all times. 
While here in the text we see Pharaoh's chariots and army approaching, we see that the text shows that they are cast into the sea. To the depths you've covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand has dashed the enemy in pieces. In the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath and it consumed them like stubble. With the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together and the flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. But God, you blew with your wind and the sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Oh God, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you? Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Father, we thank you and praise you this morning that you reign forever and ever, that you are a God that can be trusted. Father, we thank you for this picture here in Exodus 14 of freedom and the principles that are laid out here. Father, there are so many truths here for us to take a hold of and learn from. I pray, Lord, that for each one of us that your Holy Spirit would apply these truths to our lives that we might live anchored in Christ. We thank you for the truths. We pray, Lord, that you would get great glory through our lives and that it would be our greatest concern to see that you get glory through the time we have here on earth. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen.